I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Today's episode is presented by Shell. Shell supports the Commission's proposal to cut GHG emissions by 55% by 2030. This very challenging target requires measures to accelerate low and zero carbon technologies and infrastructure. The rule of law, it's a precondition to have a good functioning of the European Union because it's a question of trust in the European institutions and a trust between the member states. Welcome to EU Confidential, Europe's number one politics podcast. I'm Rim Mumtaz in Paris, standing in for Andrew Gray, who's off this week. And that you just heard at the top of the podcast was Didier Reinders, European Commissioner for Justice. You'll hear Reinders in conversation with Politico's Lily Beyer about the Commission's new rule of law audit of all 27 member states that it published last week. But first, let's kick off our panel discussion. And I'm joined this week with our regular Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hello. And our trade reporter and expert on all things Belgium, Barbara Moons. Hi, Barbara. Hello. And, you know, I'd like to kick us off uh, this week with our favorite topic, Brexit. Uh, and the reason I'm saying this is we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. And just before we started recording, uh, EU Council President Charles Michel tweeted that he just spoke to Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister. And I quote him, Charles Michel says, the EU prefers a deal, but not at any cost. Time for the UK to put its cards on the table. And then he sort of looks forward to the European Council summit that's supposed to take place next Thursday and Friday and discuss Brexit. So Barbara, I'm going to start off with you. Can you give us a state of play? Where do things stand right now? Yeah, they're not looking that good, especially because the end of the transition period is not so far away at the end of this year. Um, the European Council next week was set by the UK as a deadline to get a deal in order to get everything ratified in time. But at this point, we're nowhere near a deal yet. As you may remember, the two main sticking points remain the so-called level playing field, so which Brussels wants in order to ensure that the UK can't undercut the European single market. And then the second sticking point is the fight over fisheries, so the fishing quotas in British waters. And those two major stumbling blocks are still there. We will see whether um, the EU's chief negotiator, Michel Barnier, can make some progress when he goes to London at the end of next week. But even if we have some sort of breakthrough in the next coming days, it still takes a lot of time, obviously, to get everything translated into text and into legal text to make sure that everything is ratified in time. So let me let me ask you this, though. You mentioned the two sticking points, level playing field and fisheries. Those are the only two sticking points or the only two 
talking points that I've heard for the past year from the French. Is there a growing sentiment in Brussels that the French are being the bad boys again and are sort of blocking any kind of progress at this stage? Not really, because um, a lot of these issues are also important for other countries, EU countries, and they're pretty united still at this point, which is interesting. Um, obviously, in the UK, the French are often portrayed as, as the bad guys, and Michel Barnier is French, so that doesn't help because he's kind of the face of these, um, of these talks. But especially when it comes to fisheries, I mean, you have a lot of different coastal countries and the interests of fishing communities in Belgium, in the Netherlands, in Ireland are just as, um, it's just a sensitive point in those countries as well. And then obviously when it comes to level playing field, this is a, a crucial point for all EU countries and, and really for the, the future of the European project. Barbara, can you please just break down what do they mean by level playing field and what are the sticking points when it comes to level playing field? Sure, yeah, the, the level playing field is, is basically the concern from Brussels to make sure that the UK can undercut the single market. So what they want is not necessarily for the UK to follow the same rules when it comes to, for example, state aid, but they want more clarity on the future state aid regime of the UK. And at this point, London says that um, not only can it not give that clarity at this point, but also that it shouldn't do that because of Brexit. It's now a sovereign nation and it's free to determine its own rules. So that is something that they want more clarity on and also that they want more dispute settlement issues on. So if the UK would, for example, totally change its state aid regime, that the EU can do something about it in the future. And Matt, Barnier was sort of met with Merkel recently. He was in Berlin. Uh, you know, what have you heard on that conversation? And, you know, what is the German perspective on the way things stand right now in Brexit? Well, I heard a couple of things, and he really made the rounds in Berlin, in fact, and seems to have told everybody the same thing. And his main point seems to have been that by their calculation, what's going on here is that Johnson, Boris Johnson, is trying to push things really to the finish line in terms of building the pressure up, hoping that the Europeans will fold particularly on this issue of the uh, fishing rights. And the thinking there is that he is not as concerned about the fishing rights as an issue for the UK, but sees it as a good bargaining chip that he can give to the Europeans at the end of this process, at which time the Europeans would be willing to make more concessions on the other issues, the level playing field issues. And he's been telling people here, according to the people that I've spoken to, that he doesn't consider that to be a good deal, that the level playing field issues are too important and that they should not buckle on them. And he thinks that Boris Johnson is the one who really needs a deal for you know, his domestic political realities, more so than uh, the Europeans at this stage. So just one last point, it seems that, you know, if our past experiences is any guide, you know, it's really worth taking all of these deadlines with a grain of salt, because the EU, you know, when things get down to the wire, has, has always been willing to find creative solutions to kind of keep things from completely imploding. Is that your feeling, Barbara? Because you've, you've followed these uh, talks very 
closely? Yeah, well, the sentiment in Brussels here is that obviously um, the deadline next week is is not a real deadline. We can still go into November um, in order to get a deal and even to get it ratified in time. But the end of the transition period, so the end of the year, that really is a deadline that at this point seems legally set in stone. Um, obviously, if you don't have a deal, um, that would that would cause a lot of problems both on both sides, but especially for the UK. But even then, and that's something that people are now starting to think about, even in the case of a no-deal scenario, you still have to find a solution with the UK. At a certain point, you will still have to go back to the negotiation table, um, both in the short term to solve immediate problems that you that you will have, but also in the longer term. I would just add that at the end of the day, I think, you know, this is really about trust and, you know, the EU just doesn't doesn't trust the UK at this point, uh, given the way these negotiations have have evolved. And I think, that, you know, they would uh, say they'd like to trust but verify by having these rules firmly in place. And especially if you look at, you know, the, the situation that the EU and, and also other uh, countries around the world have had to deal with with China, where you know, China subsidizes its companies all over the place. And, uh, you know, it's often very difficult to do anything about it or to even know the degree that it's happening. So I think that this is a real deal breaker for the EU here in in terms of the subsidy issue. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so on Brexit, I just want to sort of move on to our next topic of today. And, you know, on Brexit, clearly, there seems to be, at least as Barbara said, for the time being, quite a lot of unity among uh, the Europeans, where we're seeing, let's say, some disparity among the Europeans is on coronavirus, very disparate reactions and very different ways of uh, sort of handling uh, the coronavirus pandemic and what seems to be a second wave. How about we start in Germany? What's the situation there, Matt? Well, the numbers have been rising here as they have been everywhere else, but Germany is still less exposed, it would seem, than pretty much any other country in Europe at the moment. And, you know, there there have been about 3,000 cases, I believe, in recent days in Germany, per day, which is a lot more than where we were over the summer. Over the summer, it was about, you know, a thousand, a little bit under a thousand. So, uh, But we did see that sort of video of a Chancellor Merkel that kind of went viral with her explaining uh, sort of what an exponential uh, increase in cases would look like. So she seemed to be more uh, sort of worried than you're making it out to be, Matt. Well, I think she's generally more worried uh, than I am about about most things. And yeah, interesting that that Surprising. went viral. Her, her back of the envelope uh, calculation, which seemed to be based on nothing but uh, basic arithmetic. And when she first said that, well, if things continue like this, we could be looking at 19,200 infections per day by December, none of the journalists seemed to you know, think to, to ask, well, how did you get to that 19,200? It's a very precise number. And it turned out that she was just using the rate of infection doubling, you know, over um, a period of two weeks or so and calculated it through December. I mean, look, nobody thinks we're going to be looking at that many infections by then. I think it was more of a call to get people to not forget that there is a, a pandemic and that they need to stick to the rules, to the social distancing rules, to continue to wear masks and so on and so forth. 
It's striking that you should say that because right now in France, we're looking at between 16 and 17,000 uh, new cases a day, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so, well, that's France. What do you mean? Well, what do you I mean, mean the by Germans that? are natural social distancers. I keep saying this, you know, they don't do that whole kissing thing. Well, the French stopped kissing. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't believe much to their chagrin. <laughs> Barbara, what's the situation in, in Belgium? Um, yeah, in Belgium, it's it's not looking that good, especially in Brussels. Um, we have also a rising number of reported infections and more importantly, um, a rising number of people that are hospitalized per day. Especially in Brussels, the situation in the hospitals um, is, is really starting to worry policymakers. So we had a, a new set of coronavirus measures this week. Bars can't open at all anymore. So that is all in order to make sure that schools can remain open and that um, normal work can, can resume. But yeah, so definitely some, some signs also from the new government who that also obviously wants to kind of make its mark in this pandemic. But um, yes, yeah, some tightening of the, of the measures. So that's also the case in France where, for example, bars are have been ordered shut this week, but not restaurants. Uh, schools are continuing, but universities are sort of asking half of the class to be present and the other half to be distanced and sort of calling in or, or videoing in. And there are sort of draconian measures being requ recommended and requested, like, for example, even if you're seated in a restaurant, you should still be wearing your mask when you're ordering your food. You should wear your mask between meals. So if they bring your sort of first meal and, and you're done with it, you should put your mask back on while you wait for it to be served, your second meal. And you can just imagine sort of commentators on television have been having a field day with it. Um, and I just wonder do like measures go into that much detail in Germany? I think it depends where you are to a degree. I haven't heard anything of that nature in Germany that people would have to wear a mask in between courses. But I'm actually on my way to a bar right now. So I will have one in your honor. In both of your honor, your honors. And I think that's as good as any place to actually wrap up our wonderful panel discussion today with one side of the Rhine, I guess, going to a bar and enjoying a beer and the other side, well, not being able to go to a bar. That's just the way it is. Uh, thank you, Matt. And thank you, Barbara. Thank you, Reem. You're welcome. Bye. Coming up in just one minute is Justice Commissioner Didier Reinders in conversation with Politico's Lily Beyer. A message from Shell. Shell supports the Commission's proposal to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 55% by 2030. Achieving the 2030 and climate neutrality targets will require an enabling policy framework, including a sectoral approach anchored at the heart of the climate law, including sectoral pathways to net zero, a reform of the EU ETS to ensure the continuation of a meaningful carbon price signal and to align with the 2030 and 2050 targets. Accelerating and scaling up the role of carbon sinks, including nature-based solutions and carbon capture and storage. Maintaining the global competitiveness of trade-exposed industry in the EU that face asymmetrical carbon costs on their products. Recognition of international climate action through Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. So I'm Didier Rangers, I'm a Commissioner for Justice and uh, Consumer. And so, of course, uh, 
in such a portfolio. I'm also in charge of the coordination for the first rule of law uh, report and maybe for the next. Uh, so we're sitting here in the Berlimont, the headquarters of the European Commission, and you have next to you, Commissioner, a huge binder with uh, the rule of law report that was presented last week. It's a report that covers 27 member states on four issues, the media, judiciary, checks and balances, and anti-corruption framework. So it's quite a huge binder. And uh, the first thing that I would like to ask you, Commissioner, is what is the purpose of this huge report? The purpose is to give first a very correct picture and current picture of the situation on the rule of law in all the member states, the 27, on an equal footing with a good participation of the member states and many other stakeholders. And then on the basis of the report and the next report, it's to try to install a sort of culture of the rule of law, so a culture of dialogue, not only here in the bubble, like you have said sometimes, but also in the member states. Uh, when you look at this huge report, what are the main conclusions that you think are the most significant? First, uh, in general, we have uh, more and more problems about the media, media freedom. So we need to take care of it. What are the next steps to try to protect the pluralism, the media freedom in a difficult world? for economic reasons. But on the other side, there are more and more attacks against journalists and against media actors. And there we need to see if there are maybe in the future some uh, need to have a regulation, but to provide some help. So there are two elements. Is it needed to take some specific measures, to give just a concrete example, to provide lawyers or experts to the journalists having different action and justice against themselves? Or is it possible also to make the link because if you have a murder of a journalist, like we have had, but there is a link between media freedom for investigative journalists, fight against corruption, and independent justice. Because if you don't have an independent justice, it's very difficult to organize the prosecutions. Also about the people involved, maybe in a ver murder or in a violent action. So with the report, it's possible to, to say that. First of all, a real concern about the evolution in the media and the second element is uh, a clear distinction between some concerns about all the member states in the different fields that you have mentioned, the four chapters, and a systemic problem like, to be very concrete, the independence of the judiciary in Poland. So we need to maintain a real dialogue with Poland to try to change the course of the situation now about the independence of the judiciary. They need to change the way and to give a positive answer to all requests and to the decision of the Court of Justice. So that's the main difference. Some issues, and it's possible to change or to improve in a discussion with the member state, and in other cases, a real systemic issue. Would you say that there is a rule of law crisis here in the EU? Since some years. We have seen that it was possible to launch uh, Article 7 procedure from the Commission or the Parliament, to go sometime before the Court of Justice, and to have huge discussion in the Parliament about the rule of law in some member states. And so it's very timely to come now with a, a report to give a precise picture and to en engage a real debate. Mm -hmm. What is really at stake here? You've gone to the Parliament and uh, several member states have been discussed. So, for example, this week, I know the European Parliament is discussing a, a resolution raising concerns about Bulgaria. Um, we've had um, Article 7 proceedings started against Hungary and Poland over rule of law concerns. From your perspective, what is the debate really about at this moment? 
But at this moment, it's very important to show that we are open to discuss about all the member states, and that is quite new. But it's just an additional tool. And so it's very important to continue also the discussions on the basis of Article 7 on Hungary and Poland, and for the Commission to continue to go to the Court of Justice when it's needed against some laws or against some uh, violation of the rule of law. Uh, one thing that we heard from critics over the past few days about the report is that they are concerned that it may be too little, too late. So they point to Hungary, which has been uh, experiencing some issues for about a decade now for Poland, uh, where it's been several years since the commission triggered Article 7. And they're asking, what does this report contribute more concretely? How do you respond to that? But first, too late. <laughs> it's fine. But I've asked as a minister in the Geneva Council some years ago to start a peer review on the rule of law. It was very difficult to discuss in the Council uh, on such an issue. And year after year, we have seen an evolution with more and more member states interested in such a kind of process. And so it's the first time that we have. It may be late, too late, no, but maybe late, but it was a very long process. Too little, of course, the size you have seen, it's a huge size, so it's more than, than that, but I fully understand that. Of course, on many member states, we have some pictorial remarks, some concerns on some situations. For other member states, it's more a systemic problem. Um, over the weekend, I, I was listening to the Hungarian state radio and Viktor Orban was giving an interview and he referred to the rule of law report as the Soros report. How do you respond when, when heads of state or government describe thus your work? Now, it's a, a report from the commission and with two remarks. First, it was with a very good collaboration of all the member states, and I insist, all the member states. But it's a report from the Commission. And so we have had such a good collaboration, but at the end, it's an assessment from the Commission with total transparency. And to uh, the reaction, I, I will say, we will go to the Council, and not only to discuss in general, but I'm very open to discuss country by country, the situation, like we will organize in November with the German presidency. And I've said, I'm ready to go to all the national parliaments to discuss the rule of law report, also in, in Hungary. Uh, one thing that the Hungarian justice minister, Judith Varga, who perhaps you know, said about the report is uh, that it doesn't really have a legal basis. She questioned whether the commission is really allowed to put together this kind of report. Oh, we have all the, the possibilities to do that because it's a report, I said, from the commission. But we don't have formal recommendations. But we have the capacity to say there are good practices or best practices. There are some problems and there are some uh, uh, areas where it's needed to, make, to have an improvement, but it's just a report. And this is the reason why I said it's just an additional tool. If we have more concern in one member state, we are going to the court. On the other side of the political spectrum, especially at the European Parliament, uh, one reaction that we saw from some MEPs is concern that perhaps the dialogue that you're referring to, these plans to, to go to the national capitals, to have ministers discussing these reports may not be quite sufficient. So um, I remember one member of the European Parliament even posted a video where he started stacking up all the different reports in different years, in recent years, um, about the rule of law and saying, OK, we, we've now had all the reports. What do we do now? So how do you respond to these MEPs who are saying we need to go even further? But two things. First, it will be a permanent process. 
So the report, I have said, the goal of the report is to install a real culture of the rule of law. But of course, I fully share the view that it's not enough. It's the reason why I said it's an additional tool. But we have the capacity to take actions. So I've explained also to the parliament, I will do that again uh, in the next days, uh, you need to make the difference between the report and the, the real intention to engage a dialogue not only with the authorities, with the opposition, with civil societies, in all the member states, all the time, a permanent dialogue due to the fact that we will have many other reports, and then, of course, the need to use other instruments to be more effective, just to take actions. You described... Uh, basically a toolbox that the Commission has. It has Article 7, now it has this brand new report, it has infringement proceedings, so you take countries to the Court of Justice when, when you feel like there's a specific problem. And now also there's this uh, big debate over linking EU funding to rule of law criteria. What is missing in this toolbox? Or do you think that anything is missing? And what do you see as the Commission's next step in this big rule of law debate? What is missing, like in other policies, it's a real trust uh, among the member states, among the citizens, about all the different possible actors uh, in the 27 member states, to be open to go to other rules about the, the process to take a decision. And because we conclude, I want to say that it's at the center of the report and of all the tools that we have in the toolbox. The rule of law, it's a precondition to have a good functioning of the European Union. Because it's a question of trust. If you want to invest from one member state to another one, you need to have a certain level of confidence in the fact that you will have the capacity to go to an independent and qualified judge if you have a problem with the authorities or with your partner in the investment. If we want to work on the European Air's warrant, it's a problem from a judge to another judge. But to surrender to another country some people you need to have a certain level of trust in the justice system in the others, and you have seen in the last weeks, there are more and more elements explaining that there is maybe in some case a lack of trust. And it's the reason why it's so important. But again, what's the most important next step is to be able to discuss on the rule of law, but also to take some decisions with an easy process, because that will show that we have a real trust in the European institutions and a trust between the member states. Thank you so much for your time, Commissioner. Thanks to Lily for bringing us that discussion with Commissioner Reinders. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. If you haven't done it yet, please take a minute to rate us by clicking some stars or even leaving a short review. And if you subscribe on your favorite listening platform, it means you'll get our episodes as soon as they're published. Ryan Heath will be back in your feed next Tuesday with another episode of Campaign Confidential. And we'll be back with another EU Confidential episode next Thursday. I'm Marie Mumtaz in Paris. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.